John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1300.TI0209, certificate number 49600, Thomas the Tank Engine. One day after pulling the big express, Gordon had arrived back at the sidings very tired. He was just going to sleep when Thomas came up in his cheeky way. Wake up, lazy bones, do some hard work for a change. You can't catch me. And off he ran laughing. We're sometimes hard on different, I don't want to say targets or victims, but... Are we? On this, uh, on these recordings. I mean, we're, you, we're hard on each other. We're hard on the Italians. Well. <laughs> Unlike each other, they had it coming. Never a people deserved it more. <laughs> uh, I don't know who else we're hard on. Uh, we're hard on indie rockers. We're hard <laughs> That's on... That's true. You're very hard on your peers. <laughs> I don't spend big chunks of the podcast yelling at other Jeopardy champions, but I could start. You kind of... You, you, it's not that you haven't ever done that. What's up with this Teen Week winner? What Man. a what a yo-yo. James Holtzauer has gotten a little bit of... We've given it to him a little bit, haven't we? I can't even remember. You're pretty nice to Brad, even though he's actually the one that you hate and despise the most. Even though he's cost me millions of dollars <laughs> over the course of my life with his amazing blend of Jeopardy skill and luck. But for the most part, we're gentle with people. We're gentle with history and gentle with the things that we put into the omnibus. I would think so. Somebody online was giving us a hard time for roasting my son, Dylan. Oh. And I'm, and I'm not even aware... Of all the villains of history, Dylan <laughs> deserves it the most. Of all the people who have it coming, because <laughs> when I tried to get him out of bed this morning to clean his room, something he'd known about for days, he was... He was just lying in bed at 9.30, drinking a soda and saying, oh, no, I can't do that today. I have a Zoom meeting at, at uh, 11. What a bunch of malarkey. A Zoom <laughs> meeting. Sheer malarkey. <laughs> You're 17. How do you have more Zoom meetings than I do? Uh, we I, And I did remember you do roast Dylan a bit in the interest of, uh, of Caitlin. giving equal time to my daughter. Yeah, I mean, Dylan, you know. Dylan uh, takes a lot of the oxygen out of the room, whereas Caitlin is... He's already got fans. Yeah. He can he can lose a little bit of listener goodwill, I Caitlin think. Caitlin is a fascinating Jennings. Of all the Jennings I know... She really is the best Jennings. Yeah, she's a very good... But I don't want to give the impression that you or I dislike my awful 17-year-old son, Dylan. Because he's... No, he's not. He's actually a delightful kid. He's a strapping and impressive young man. Handsome, very uh, very confident and capable around adults. He started going for walks this week, which has really impressed the heck out of me, because in lockdown, he it has really indulged all his worst tendencies, sure. which is just to rediscover Game. Fortnite and play Fortnite yeah. 14 hours a day. But it should be noted that uh, over the last couple of years, Dylan has undergone that teen transformation... Where um, he was a boy, he was a, a little boy, and then he was a medium-sized boy. Children are accessories. But now when I walk into the house, he greets me, uh, not as a peer, but he he does, like, he has social grace. He says, oh, hello. He doesn't quite call me Mr. <laughs> Roderick, which I would prefer. I didn't see you there. Thanks, <laughs> oh, for, thanks for stopping by. Oh, welcome. May I take your hat and coat? <laughs> does he offer you a cool, refreshing drink? Not quite, but he's on his way. Yeah, he uh, he's definitely taller than me mm. and knows better than me about oh, sure. well, everything. Sure. Sure. There is really nothing. Even if I say, hey, Dylan, I asked you to wrap up the video games at 11. It's now 1130 and you are just screaming uh, at your 
so-called friends. Right. <laughs> Does he say it's not 1130 in Alaska? He, uh, he just rolls his eyes. He, oh, he knows better than us. The thing is, his father is a uh, nationally renowned uh, expert. How, do you, how did you know who his real father is? This is, this is, nobody's supposed to know this. Yes, his dad's a Nobel Prize winning chemist, and yes, it almost ended our marriage, John. I am his father. <laughs> uh, join me, Dylan. Uh, no, but, uh, but it must be, it must be hard for you not to pull rank sometimes and say, you know that I'm an accredited expert, expert on things. Accredited by, by the ABC television network. <laughs> accredited by syndicated <laughs> television. Uh, I never actually, luckily he never did debate or anything, so he doesn't really try to argue. He just I rolls see. his eyes and steams inwardly oh. at our unfair. Because really his only argument ever is, but my friends don't have to. Mm. As if this would have any bearing on, on whether <laughs> he can still scream at his, at his Animal Crossing characters at, at 1130. But uh, but we are crazy about Dylan. He's uh, he's a delight. And uh, when he was younger, uh, he doesn't do this anymore. But one of my favorite things about him was that he would put on a new outfit for every single activity he did. Like if we were, uh, if he was, if he was watching cartoons in the morning on TV. If he was watching Bob the Builder, he would have a hard hat and overalls on. Oh, wow. And if it switched to Batman, he would have to run upstairs during the commercial break and put on a full caped crusader outfit and come back downstairs. And then, and so we would just come downstairs every morning and he would be staring at the TV in the outfit of whatever was on TV. Oh, you have never roasted him so hard as you're doing right now because I know that some of his friends listen to the show. And they might not know this. They probably don't, and they are going to give it to him with both barrels. He was a—I mean, he's like three years old. It's understandable. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> when you're owning your friends, it doesn't matter if, if the uh, there's no statute of limitations on wearing a Bob the Builder outfit. I used to fall asleep in the bathtub, and at one point, my mom took a picture of me, you know, fast asleep in the bathtub, and I had put it on Instagram. This was last year. It was just last year. <laughs> And, uh, and it was in a picture album uh, at our house, and my friends at one point uh, were directed to it, maybe, by oh. my sister. And boy, I sure... Big sisters. I sure heard about that forever. Uh, we thought it was adorable. It was our favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but his biggest obsession, the costume he probably wore the most, was a little uh, engineer's... He had an engineer's hat, a train engineer's hat. And he would actually have a, a train, kind of a foam train that would strap around his shoulders. So he was as if he were a big, a big train engineer sticking out the top of this little tiny locomotive. I'm going to have to roast him now. I mean, the Batman thing was fine, but he's a little train. He was obsessed with trains. I'm going to roast this. I'm going to roast this child when I see him. Now. Except you think you think uh, the railroad is a good hobby. I love. I'm the biggest train spotter of all. You, but you I spot still, them. You jump them. I you st- like it when little old men uh, make miniature ones. <laughs> I'm still going to roast them. You're, you're a train guy across the board. Mm-hmm. Did, did your daughter ever go through a uh, a train phase? Like uh, that? Not trains. She does change her outfit 14 times a day because every every new chapter of her life deserves an entire new costume head to toe by the way my daughter does that too but with her it's because of a spill (laughs) (laughs) oh my daughter doesn't mind a spill she'll cover herself in cheerios and and scabetti sauce but she'll need a new you know new princess outfit every every minute not just princess you know every kind but no i tried to get her interested in trains um and she was remarkably resilient in terms of resisting all my attempts to get her to uh, adopt gender-neutral toys even, let alone boy toys, um, cars, trucks, planes. Just didn't, um, didn't embrace them except as conveyances for dolls who were on their way to a party. Um, the, the dolls were not going to work or some kind of suffragette convention. No. And then, uh, you know, and, and when she was very young, I would give her a car and she would turn it upside down and, uh, and cradle it in her arms like a baby. <laughs> okay. So we had the opposite experience with a little boy who, no matter what kinds of 
wholesome feminist empowering gender neutral toys you tried to get them would find the one most shaped like a gun (laughs) and hold it and make bang bang noises and it didn't matter what it was my mom said the same thing about me in the early 70s she you know my mom's a pacifist she wanted no guns in the house no guns around and she said i would pick up anything that was shaped like an L or even <laughs> like an even L. like a boomerang, you know, and I would just immediately like pow, pow, pow. And eventually she surrendered. They had to give you like some Gatsby version of the world that omitted the letter L entirely <laughs> because otherwise you would just go bananas. But still, you know, it's, it's a, like a telephone is a, I mean, you yep. could pick the, 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 uh, the headset or the handset out of the cradle. And we saw Dylan do it pow, with his pow. hand. He was counting. He, we had taught him to count on his fingers. And he's like, one, two, three. That's a gun. <laughs> like suddenly, <laughs> like his brain just empty. He's like the Terminator, like boop, 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 weapon spotted. He can't count anymore. But I really, you know, I, I would take, uh, so uh, my daughter and I go to the Boeing Airplane Museum all the time. And she does like it there. But... Um, but likes it primarily, you know, you can see in a little kid's mind, this is an enormous place full of all these interesting machines, but really it's just the place, you know, it's yeah. the, it's the laser tagness of it. And she wants to go through all the airplanes. And I hope that some of it is osmosis, uh, that, you know, rubbing off on her, this interest in, in airplanes, but, you know, standing there with daddy while he talks about the P-40 Tomahawk. No, I mean, every listener to this podcast now (laughs) is sympathizing with your daughter. (laughs) They're like, we've been there. And we go to the car museum and we go to the train shows and stuff. And she, you know, she's very patient with me in allowing. That's nice. When kids do that. Yeah. In allowing that this is an interesting thing for me. (laughs) Yes, Dad. But uh, no, she so far has not picked up um, machines. But uh, but I, I I think there's still a lot of time, right? She's only nine, so she has a whole nine more years before she can no longer before I I no longer get to have any say at all in what we do on weekends. It's gonna be less than that. Is <laughs> my from my experience with a 13, 14 year old girl, it might be a little less than that. We're, I, we uh, have told you put into the time capsule before that uh, the future I think knows that. Trains, a kind of moderately outdated, no longer the cool form of transport in our times. For you. Although still very useful, uh, are nonetheless kind of a classic children's toy in miniature form. Right. You can't have a Christmas tree without a little train zipping around it. And I'm sure it's just because it predates the automobile, really. It's uh, the idea that you would have a miniature machine. Yeah, right. Trains have over a century of heritage at being that machine. Having a little toy horse cart would have been the thing before that but as soon as there was a train why would you still have a horse cart i guess because dad had one were there even miniature ho- did kids oh, have, have did kids have hot wheels of prairie schooners there must have been I, i'm thinking of a revolutionary war you know a, would a, you have a little tin yeah a, or or a, a you know dad would make a little a little wood cart and put a little wood horse in front of it had to have I'm sure. I'm sure the vintage toy people right now. Only if you're wealthy, Papa. <laughs> Papa, have Paul Revere make me another horse cart. I want a handsome cat for my collection. Solid silver, Daddy. I'm sure the vintage toy futurelings. Uh, They're going to tell us who are collecting uh, old Batman are going to say, well, in the in the foggy yesteryear. Please let us know what the history of pre-motorized miniature transport was, because I just realized I have no idea. Yeah, and if you have any, send them to <laughs> P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington. Uh, the uh, I feel like there was not a... We did not come of age in a big train era. Even when I was a kid, I was not like, oh, boy, I hope I get a train set. Well, you know, the, the trains... The trains died out... Just before my era, right? Uh, the 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 heyday of the American Railroad was in my parents' lives. Mm-hmm. My father, you know, my father took when he took the train when he went off to war, and um, and there were still it was still steam locomotion, and then my mother was there through the whole transition to diesel power, and you know the great uh, the great like American train experience, the, the passenger journeys, the empire builder. Yeah. Uh, and then they all fell apart and Amtrak was created sort of right in my, in my early childhood. And sucked the fun out of everything. It really, it really did. And so many railroads fell apart and, and consolidated because we grew up in the era of jet travel. And I think most, most people would think <laughs> we grew up in a very exciting time 
when uh, when jet travel was still was still a a little bit of a novelty. Yeah, a novelty and still a, still a glamorous way of traveling. And uh, so miniature toy trains continue to be a thing, but mostly uh, the 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 people who like slightly old fusty things are slightly old fusty people. And once kids could get Hot Wheels or remote control cars or toy planes. They wanted the new hot thing. When I was a kid, everybody had a toy space shuttle. Uh, uh, of all and, and of my, my friends, my friends did not have train sets. That's what I was about to say. Of all of my friends, I was the only one with a train set. <laughs> that's really on brand for you, by the way. And uh, <laughs> were they all like, "You're going to have a podcast someday"? And not only that, but none of them wanted to play with it with me. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It was a gift from a. Was yours a gift from a parent? Uh, from my dad, but my dad worked for the railroad. Mm. But I loved my train, but it was it was an introvert's toy because I would stand and play, you know, watch my train go around in circles all afternoon while I moved little cars around. Um, it's harder to have adventures with a train, as we shall see later in this yeah, entry. Yeah, and, and this, was the, this was the problem with my friends. You know, they would watch the train go around three times and go, okay. I mean, what it's else not, does it do? Yeah, you can't really interact with it. Uh, so it was, it's, it's an imaginative toy. Really, more than an action toy. Yes, this this uh, definitely ties into your your self flattering belief that you you know you you the adventures in your mind could not compete with any toy or art. Yes, yes. So in your mind, what's happening there is the train goes around in circles. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in my mind, the train is on a you know a long adventure. Yes. The circle, it's just an infinite loop. It's a uh, it's a, a Mobius strip. So as a Gen X kid who came up with essentially without trains, except kind of as a Vaguely cool old timey and kind of a rural thing. I would associate, you know, the sound of boxcars in the night with, you know, going to my grandparents' farm or whatever. I didn't dislike trains. But but then when you move to Korea, like the uh, trains in Asia are a whole different can of worms, aren't they? I feel like I've almost no, like I really got into transit living there, buses and then a great subway system. But I don't really know much about Asian freight. Pretty, that's pretty virtue signaling. Oh, I got yeah. really into effective uh, transit. <laughs> I just love the way they encourage density in new urban environments, John. Walkable neighborhoods. <laughs> no, it's because when you're little, you get to ride a bus. Sure, a bus. Uh, it's transit's fun when you're a kid. I feel like it's it's the the uh, my generation that grew up in America, the first ever America without public transportation for a lot of people that we never got that just default idea that it's cool to get a ticket from a guy with a hat. And to figure out on the map ding, which ding. stop you're getting off on and getting to pull the little thing. But Transit's you're, great. You're right that trains, there's something intrinsically sentimental about them. And I don't know whether that's because because they're a symbol of yesteryear. We grew up without them. Or whether it's that the any train whistle that sounds in the night is spooky. And, um, and the sound of trains moving in the night. Everyone is, loves the sound of a train in the distance. Yeah, it's... Um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I think it would be sentimental even if it didn't have an association just because what, what is, I mean, what's happening there? There are these giant dinosaurs yeah. that are, that are moving around us in the night and, and they belong there, but they, but they're other world cars you think of as extension of a, of a person. You never say she ran into my bumper. You say she hit me. So when we, we see a bunch of cars on a freeway, we think, we don't think. Look at these machines going about their day. We think, ah, these are people going somewhere. Right, look at these people. But you don't think that with a train. You don't think, wonder where he's going. You're like, what is that big metal caterpillar? And, you know, what adventures is it on its way to? But I was not prepared for this as a parent because I grew up in this trainless uh, Gen X era. And I was really not prepared for the 21st century when every child goes through a huge train phase. Is this true? Dylan had, yeah. Well, I think largely, and it's largely as a result of... Our hero today, Thomas the Tank Engine. Uh, when when Dylan was a kid, there were there was a little table full of Thomas the Tank Engine trains in every Barnes and Noble. So all the moms would drop their kids off at the kids section to play on the train table while they would. What do moms do? Gossip. Uh, yeah, uh, shop and uh, <laughs> shop for shoes. Make garments in the children's section uh, of Barnes and Noble. They cook. I'm sure there were some forward-thinking dads there too. I was working from home then, so sometimes I was the dad at the train table. Flirting with the moms. <laughs> <laughs> but train Thomas the Tank Engine is British, right? And don't British yes. trains have a very different story from from American trains? Uh, the uh, This doesn't seem to trouble kids who are not no longer really... I mean, it does... Thomas honestly does make them experts on 
trans on two different occasions we had to take Dylan to a local what do you call these heritage kind of steam locomotive tourist railway line well you'd better keep the contempt out of your voice my friend where they had no wait for it where they had dressed up the locomotive to look like thomas the tank engine oh that's such pandering they put a big face with rolling googly eyes on him so the kids would want to ride a but no, did, oh, that train should have the livery of the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. Dylan loves Dylan loves a good heritage railway. He also uh, every time we think about watching a movie at home, somebody asks Dylan if he wants to watch the Heber Creeper needs a conductor, which is a a burned DVD that his grandma made for him once when we rode a Utah steam railway called the Heber Creeper, and he was dressed like a train man, and so we have a three minute video of. Three-year-old Dylan on the train. Oh, I thought I thought this was a narrative film. I was going to be well, like, the kind Heber, of Heber needs a well, conductor. She gave it a name. She put a sticker on it with the title. So we're always like, hey, Dylan, let's watch The Heber Creeper Needs a Conductor. Maybe, he, is, he is the the titular conductor. Maybe you could put that in the show notes for the show. <laughs> Patreon subscribers get to see The Heber Neeper Gets a Conductor. Well, I think we're going to upload it. Uh, but his train love was very Thomas-centric because uh, Thomas really weaponizes trains for a younger audience see we tried to get my daughter into thomas the tank engine feeling like this will do it they're hey here's a friendly little face and uh, maybe this will be you know turn her into uh a nerd like daddy and she was just like not into it i mean if you couldn't cuddle thomas uh then it wasn't it held no appeal for futurelings who don't know the thomas and friends universe is as you say a british property about a bunch of anthropomorphic locomotives and they're very mildly interesting adventures (laughs) Uh, because by fundamentally, if you cannot choose where you're going to go, <laughs> this is a huge problem. How interesting can your adventures be? This is a huge problem with Thomas and we shall see with his politics. It's, uh, and more to the, more to the point, there's a weird element in any Thomas adventure where humans exist in this world. This is not the cars universe huh. where, where trains have evolved to take, to be the dominant species. No, humans are still telling them what to do. And which tracks to go on and which cars to take where. But the trains are the protagonists. They just have no free will. Wow. They're a, they're a virtual slave class. Dark. It's a little bit dark. And it was never intended that way. The, are, they, are they happy little slaves? The goal for them is to be happy, which is a very unusual uh, aesthetic. The... Uh, the Thomas the Tank Engine characters are actually born out of a book series called the Rail, imaginatively called the Railway Series, mm-hmm. um, dreamed up in 1943 by a British uh, churchman, a clergyman named Wilbert Audrey, who was a curate in Birmingham in the 1940s, uh, whatever a curate is. Uh, his young son Christopher was sick with the measles, and like a lot of like a lot of these properties, uh, it was developed as a bedtime story. Uh, Christopher must have had these little toy trains of early 20th century steam locomotives, and his dad gave them all personalities. In the first story we meet, the personalities, by the way, are very hastily sketched and often are mostly represented by colors. Like, huh. uh, oh, this is Edward. He's the green engine. Oh, of course, the green one. It's like the Power Rangers. <laughs> but do, do the um, do the colors denote certain emotions? Is the green one always a little seasick? Uh, <laughs> envious? <laughs> Muslim? <laughs> Often eco-friendly. Uh-huh. Often the uh, often there is kind of a one-word adjectival sketch, kind of seven dwarfs style uh, character building, right. where they will both have a character and a you know one thing to know about them. Edward is green and kind. Uh, Gordon, I think, is blue, but he's the largest, so he's a little bit bossy. Sure. Henry is also green, I think. Um, He's a little bit of he's he's a little moody. He's a hard worker, but he's also he's a complainer. Oh right. So so you, we have these kind of one like a muppet. You know one thing about them and sure and it's you're good. Eeyore, Tigger, exactly. Piglet. There's a bouncy one. There's a wimpy one. There's a gloomy one. A lot of children's literature works like this. But the first story had these three trains and the head of the railway line who is called the fat director. Hello. <laughs> well, it gets better when Britain <laughs> nationalized the railway slightly later. Uh, Private railways could not have their own director, so he became the fat controller. The fat controller. So, I finally found a job description <laughs> that fits. I have often thought that maybe Weight Watchers should rename themselves. <laughs> We're the fat controllers. 
in the in the U.S. versions, uh, he is given a name, and I think later, maybe later in the Railway series, he is given the name of Sir Topham Hatt. Is is he a human? He is a kind of a uh, yes. He's a roly poly human. He's a large man with a top hat and a morning suit and a watch on a chain, and he's got the very important job of making sure all the engines go where they're supposed to. He's a he's a capitalist stooge. He is a hundred percent. Even when he's nationalized by the evil uh, British Rail, he remains a ca- and there is kind of some anti-British Rail uh, propaganda in the early stories about how you know in other off of our little island. This all takes place on a mythical island called Sodor. Uh-huh. Which appears to be a very so such a large island in the Irish Sea, kind of off of uh, Cumbria or Lancashire, something in the north of England, that it pretty much bridges the gap between England and the Isle of Man. But it it uh... there is a train bridge from Barrow on Furness or some Cumbrian city that actually connects to the island of Sodor. So it's it is within the actual. I mean, it, within the cosmology with, of, of Thomas the Tank Engine, the United Kingdom exists and is, like, yes. concurrent. Kind of, at first kind of tacitly, and then later by, you know, they're actually maps now. Huh. And the island of Soda, to have all these adventures and this increasingly sprawling cast of train characters, must be improbably large. It looks to me, I looked at a map, uh, and there are at least 20, 25 stations on the, the little bucolic island of Sodor. So it's really... A huge Atlantis that's come out of the Irish Sea, <laughs> right. ne- nearly connecting the Isle of Man with the uh, with Britain, and it was named for, I guess, as a churchman, Audrey noticed that the uh, the uh, bishop of the Isle of Man, his diocese is called Sodor and Man, and there actually is no island of Sodor. Sodor was a is a old Norse term for the southern island. I mean, southern land or southern islands or something, and it refers to the southern islands of Scotland, the southern Hebrides or something, and he was annoyed that. Even though this guy got Sodor and man, there was no Sodor. Sodor. Right. So he, you know, if, invented it. If there is no Sodor, invent a Sodor. Uh, yeah, dreamers uh, see an island that is not there and say, why not, or whatever. How many train stations can I put on this imaginary island was his second thought. Uh, as the story, Christopher loves these stories, and as the Reverend goes on to tell more, he develops uh, a core cast of characters. Edward Gordon and Henry are still there, but you get James, who's kind of an arrogant red train, thinks he's the best because he's red. Uh-huh. Percy, who's small and green and therefore a little cheeky. And a headstrong, cheerful blue engine named Thomas, who by virtue of kind of being a bit of an everyman, takes over the story and becomes the main character, even though this used to be Edward Gordon and Henry's bailiwick. It's funny because I, I, I'm just now realizing that I have conflated... Thomas the Tank and Tom Hanks. You thought they were the same person. Well, no, but I, when, the I whole time, of, when I think when I think of watching, Thomas the you're Tank, you're watching Big, and you're like, "Is that a giant blue locomotive?" When I when I think of it, though, I do think of young Tom Hanks, like Bosom Buddies era Tom Hanks, is the little face inside of Thomas the Tank Engine for me. I don't. I, I never thought about it before. He has never been the voice of. Uh, although another frequent Saturday Night Live guest host has been the face of Thomas the Tank Engine. In, in the U.S. anyway, as we will see. Thomas, so Thomas is a supporting character who takes over the franchise. Like, um, is there another example of... Sure, like J.J. from Good Times. Exactly, like an Urkel situation. Or Popeye. Popeye was just some walk-on sailor, and then he took over the strip. Is that right? Yeah. Who was the star? Olive oil? It was, Pluto? It was like Olive Oil's lame uh, original suitor, like Ham Gravy. Oh, so I've seen these. There was a guy named Ham Gravy. That was a common name during the Depression because people would hire you just because they're like, mmm, you sound delicious. Licking my chops. Like they look at him and he turns into a gravy boat. Ham Gravy. Uh, so Thomas eventually takes over and this becomes a mass culture property. Audrey publishes books about these trains. Um, there's a even curate no more. Yeah, he continues to, to, what do you say, work the pulpit? No, preach. Work, work the pulpit. He continues to work the pulpit, <laughs> as we say. That's, it sounds like a sexual maneuver, but it is not. Cradle the Bible, work the pulpit. <laughs> These are yo-yo tricks. <laughs> uh, until the 1960s, I think, when he finally retired. But by that time, he was a best-selling author throughout Britain. Um, he... Uh, the books were illustrated by, like, it's not enough that these are books by a guy named the Reverend W. Audrey. The illustrator is named C. Reginald Dalby. 
mid-century Britain was so British. <laughs> it really was. If you think Britain is British today, imagine reading a book by C. Reginald Dalby and thinking this is the new hot thing. Think about the piles of pipe tobacco that surrounded <laughs> their chairs from them tapping out their pipes over and over. So, Ken, I'd like to interrupt the show here with a little ad for our show. You're going to advertise our show during our show. I'm going to stop our show where people are listening to you and me talk to do an ad for our show. This is going to work because I bet 100% of the people who listen to our show would be interested in our show. Interesting. It's the perfect demographic for us. And we have and we got two celebrities to advertise the show for us. <laughs> We're so lucky. You and me. <laughs> One of the advantages of supporting the show is... Uh, and I'm talking about an advantage over and above the satisfaction of knowing that you are supporting Omnibus, your favorite podcast. Part of the community. Uh, is that we have a whole, a whole host of benefits for Patreon supporters. A whole raft of benefits. A raft of benefits. We literally put them on a raft. So at the, at the, at the first tier of support and every subsequent tier uh you have access to, I think, what is some of the best bonus content out there, an additional entry in the Omnibus uh, where we review old episodes uh, according to letters we've received from you, the listeners. Corrections, additions, uh, submissions. Uh, we let We talk back. That's right. You get to talk back to us, and then we mostly slap your comments down. We do not let you have the last word. But sometimes, yeah, maybe you had a point. But we do go back and review old episodes and um, and add because some I, of that information into the omnibus. Because actual experts are replying. That's People right. who have spent decades working in these fields, and for some reason, they think their insights are... Uh, are more uh, valuable than ours. Right. They're like, nah, that's not how an aileron works. And then we end up having to tell them, no, even though you're an aeronautical engineer, we knew better. But not often. We're pretty honest about it. That was the engineer on the 737 MAX. But then uh, but then at subsequently higher tiers... Yeah, that's the lobster person level. At the $10 per month level, sentient aspen tree level, you get the bonus episode, but you also get access to our the photo feed on our Patreon, which is essentially an image blog of... You and me recording. It's the uh, the stuff we the people the physical objects that people send us that we talk about on the show. It's copies of our show notes, so you can see kind of a director's cut of what didn't didn't make the show. Our show notes are are little um, artifacts of the way our brains work. Uh, Ken's show notes are are meticulously written in spookily small handwriting, such that um, that suggest maybe he is. Weird graph paper they haven't yeah. sold since like 1989 at a Japanese department store. It's, it's the that octagonal graph paper for <laughs> uh, for doing dungeons, and then mine are often written on the back of grocery store receipts, scrawled illegibly in leaky pens. John's may have his checking account number on the back, so that's a that's a unannounced perk. At the higher level, the next level, twenty dollar level, twenty dollar a month, robot alien explorer. You get all those perks, plus you get a copy of one of the show notes autographed by us. An actual real. A remnant of the show. Let's say an artifact. Let's say your name is what's this? What's this um, robot alien explorer's name, John? Uh, Macy Glotz. We would say uh, thanks, Macy Glotz, and then John and I would sign, and uh, it would show up in your mailbox. And it would be the real deal, something that we. Uh, so Ken often starts at the top of his list and goes down, and tries to include everything he wrote on the page. I often will get halfway through a page and go in a different direction, and then forget to even mention the things I wrote down on the page. Those are some of the real collectibles. And yours have coffee rings on them. So, that's right, a lot of coffee. So if you want John's them. DNA, it's not impossible. So that's at the $20 level. That's $20 a month. If you think about the fact that we do two shows a week, well, that's eight shows a month. Yeah, if you, if you well, 10 probably if you count the addendum show. Oh, right. So, so you, that's, a, that's a, a, a mere $2 a show. That's not actually so bad. Even though it seems like an aspirational amount, it's $2 for a, a, an hour or so of... Uh, of really, really scattershot entertainment. Yeah, that's right. Top shelf, or let, let's say uh, middle shelf that's near the top of entertainment. If for some reason you have disposable income and you value the Omnibus community to such a degree that you would like to pay more than the market value for Omnibus, hmm. you're welcome to do that at our <laughs> $50 a month washing bear tier. We super, super adore you. And what does the washing bear tier get? All the other stuff, plus they get to choose the topic of a show. Now, my next show 
is going to be one chosen by uh, one of our Washing Bear listeners. And we will credit him or her. And uh, and you you just made John read up on something you were into for like an hour. You, you're, he's like your slave now. It's super exciting because when, when people send us good ideas, it's always very obvious to one of us that the show was meant for us to do. Uh, at the $100 level, the okay. Omniversal Hypercoral level. Come on, Omniversal Hypercoral. I mean, this is going to have to be something pretty good. Because High five this, to you. this is somebody who loves Omnibus enough to, to drop, you know, their Starbucks budget, their sure. monthly Starbucks budget on uh, a podcast that others are not paying $100 well, for. We love you. I mean, this is, t- this is $10 an episode. Uh, and they Still get... Still less than you'd pay to go to the movies. They get all of the above prizes. They get the bonus episode. They get all the images in the photo feed. They get a copy of autographed show notes. They get to suggest a show. But they also, uh, we've been doing video chats with our donors at this level. We've been hanging out with them. Super fun, even though it's completely antithetical to what we would normally do. And totally up to you. We can talk about whatever we want. You have, maybe you have questions. We had a great a great experience with, um, with a donor in Denver. Oh, no, Detroit. One Detroit. of the D-towns. Um, Dallas. And the the donor actually it was his girlfriend that got him the the subscription and then his friend came on the call. Seemed like the friend was kind of into it. Yeah, the friend kind of dominated the conversation. The donor seemed like a, be annoyed at his girlfriend for putting him in this position, but it seems like sort of annoyed at his friend. In too. the end, everybody had fun. Yeah, good time. So that is the uh, those are the options available to you if uh, you have the wherewithal right now to support Omnibus. Thank you so much to those of you who are supporting the show. We appreciate it very much. And now, back to the show featuring Ken Jennings and John Roderick. Love those guys. Audrey and Dalby often fought because Audrey was a real railway nerd, and Dalby would sometimes draw a, a little component of one of the locomotives wrong. Oh. And so there would be huge back and forths over every illustration, like, like you know, we should know that Percy is actually an E2... By the way, a tank engine means a locomotive that carries its water with it in tanks to make steam. These are steam locomotives, not on a tender. I'm sure you, I'm not, I can't tell you anything about old trains you don't know. But as a dad, I don't think I realized for years why he was a tank engine. Oh, I see. He's not, <clears throat> he, not going to go to war. You often see a locomotive that's carrying, uh, that's right behind the locomotive has a car that has all its coal right. and there's also a water tank. Right. Uh, and the tank engine is yeah, that's all built in. Maybe a it little, still has a, maybe it has a coal tender. A little coal still? tender, but but is a is a uh, is a much more self contained and you know smaller operation. It carries its own water. Um, and they're big. As do I. <laughs> right, like you're like a camel, <laughs> and they have big, friendly, cylindrical noses, perfect for C. Uh, Reginald Dalby to put kind of smiley faces on the front of the locomotive. Um, and in fact, there's even a. Uh, in 1984, this became a popular British television property uh, because it was very, maybe we've kind of implied this in the uh, episode about the BBC surveillance vans, but Britain's a smaller country than the US. TV yes. shows have smaller budgets. And this was perfect. This was a bunch of model trains on a table where a voiceover could reassure you that stuff is happening and then the trains could whiz on their way. So uh, perfect for British television budgets. There was a night, and it's always just a series of vignettes with Thomas and his train friends um, having kind of, the, as you as you imply, these deterministic adventures on the tracks. There was a 1953 precursor. Doing, during Audrey's lifetime, uh, I think the BBC tried to air a Thomas show, but they tried to do it live. And really, children's animation is very hard to do live. <laughs> yeah, I can't even I can't even picture. They there was just got a talking announcer, and then the trains were supposed to do stuff on the table. But at one point during the show, somebody screwed up the points, and mm. as a result, a train actually went off the tracks. And viewers, children, had to see a giant hand place Henry <laughs> or Edward back on the track, which I'm sure like is be a big Monty Python foot coming in. I mean, that's uh, that's basically the story of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? A giant hand comes in and puts you back on the track. It's really the story of religion. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and and Audrey was furious that the uh, that the universe of Sodor would be vile. First of all, that somebody would get the points wrong because he's a train nerd. Sure. And you know, so something technical going wrong with the model railway set just and a hand coming in and ruining all the so, so as a result, there's like a thirty year gap 
where Thomas is absent from the airwaves. Oh, he says no more. Having done uh, the, the the shame, I will carry with me. It's it's it, he it take it leaves a bad taste in his mouth, or maybe that was just the pipe tobacco. But it takes until the mid '80s for Thomas and friends to come back on the air, where his cheeky little adventures are narrated by none other than Ringo Starr. Oh, perfect! Ringo Starr is such a little tank engine. He's he's the cheekiest beetle. He's the he's the beetle that did not have a coal tender. And I guess if Sodor is off the coast of Cumbria and Lancashire, right. it makes sense to have a Liverpudlian accent. Sure, that's, he sounds exactly like you would expect. I mean, it's probably a real. I don't. I, I don't I'm not old enough to remember uh, a time when suddenly Ringo is doing children's TV. But I wonder if it was a real baby boomer nail in the coffin, like Ringo. Is is now a, you know, he's he's now Mister Rogers. Well, but if you think about the Beatles and their uh, <clears throat> and their sort of well, Yellow Submarine, sure, um, they're that was the em- Thomas uh, Th- Thomas that can go underwater, right? And and they embraced not only that kind of cartoon stuff, but also the whole Sergeant Pepper aesthetic, the whole nineteen twenties or eighteen nineties revivalism of. Their look and McCartney's songwriting, they they had a... They like trains. They like a magical mystery tour. They do. And they like that sort of uh, Ferris wheel, Carney Barker uh, sort of background imagery. So he's a natural fit because Thomas the Tank Engine would have also been hearkening back to a, a Britain of yesteryear, even... In the '60s, plus maybe it encouraged kind of a proto, an older proto Adult Swim audience that would get high and then watch these extremely yeah. gentle adventures oh, of brightly colored trains whistling and tooting and steaming and going about their day. Friendship is magic. Ken. In 1989, these uh, shorts were exported to the U.S. for the first time, where they were used um, as kind. Of, they're like little five. I don't know, five or six minute mini adventures. Oh. And in the UK, they were an anthology. Uh, in the US, they were dotted into a PBS kids program called Shining Time Station, uh, where there would be these live action rappers set in a in a kind of a small, whimsical rural train station uh, where occasionally, you know, the, the DD Khan from Greece is there. There's a bunch of kids. Uh, and then every so often, uh, a little miniature... I don't know, six-inch Ringo Starr hops out of the mural on the wall and tells the kids a story. Dude, that used to happen to me all the time. <laughs> if if that if you're seeing a six-inch Ringo Starr <laughs> hop out of the wall. Oh, I'm so glad that you're confirming this for me. I was like, I thought I was crazy. Was that a good trip or a bad it trip for you? Always good, man. Ringo's <laughs> back. Hey, Ringo. And he's tiny now. What's up? Uh, and then Hello, he would... he, he me, Ringo. I'm very small now. <laughs> I don't know why I can't do an accent on Q. Peace and love. <laughs> he still does that on Twitter, right? Yeah, peace and love. Uh, and so he would tell a little story, and then we would they would play a five minute. It's kind of like the children's TV host that just is kind of a rapper for old public domain cartoons, right? So, but the but the PBSness of this <clears throat> feels right. Did did you go through a phase with your children where you kind of believed that British? children's programming was in the same way that we believed that British uh, sketch comedy or uh, <laughs> or or just drama dramedy was sure. was edifying or somehow upstairs downstairs is not a soap like dynasty it's good for you right it's good for you even though it's totally a soap did yeah. you because we used to play for our little girl button moon and all these sort of British slow talking children's programs. Because I think we just think that a British accent yes. is going to make them grow up and, and be good at school. It's like baby Mozart. Yeah. Like your IQ gets so much higher if you if you hear uh, Lola and Charlie talk in a, in a British accent. I think that must have been part of it. Except that, that goes away very quickly because once Ringo apparently only had a one-year contract. So he's uh, – after the first season of the show, Ringo left. Maybe it was just too much work for him. He wanted to <laughs> sit on a billion Beatle dollars and – Smoke weed and say peace and love. No, he likes to get out there. You know, Ringo Starr's all-star band, they tour a lot. That's true. He tours for a bunch more of than, old men. For, yeah, for a British rocker who does not have tax problems, Ringo tours so much more than you'd think. Uh, it's more more evidence that life is boring. Do you know? It, I think that's true. Yeah. Like, really, no amount of money is as good as something to do in the morning. Like, why does Bob Dylan keep going on tour? Yeah. Because life 
is boring. With somebody like Dylan, you could say, well, he's chased by demons. But I think we all know Ringo is not chased by demons. No. But Dylan is definitely chased by demons. Everybody's got a different reason, I guess. Uh, so do you know who replaced Ringo Starr and was the voice of Thomas in America for the following decade? Alec Baldwin. Even weirder. Alec Baldwin comes later. That's, that's correct. Uh, Juliette Lewis. <laughs> yes, Juliette Lewis. <laughs> kids, were, kids were very scared. Uh, George Carlin. Counterculture Whoa. comedian. So this is another kind of wake-up call for the baby boomers. Because, you know, George Carlin is no longer using PG-13 words. He's just telling kids gentle things about trains and learning lessons about friendship. I can see him as kind of a, in the sense of Robin Williams being very successful as the genie, George Carlin is, even as you said that, uh, even as you said the word trains a minute ago, he did have that strangely... What sounds like a very condescending voice, but I think a kid would find it very soothing. Oh, that's true. That sort of like, hey, kids, it's a train. And he had, I think at this time, maybe he had already employed that in the first Bill and Ted's, right? Right. He had, he was already, he had already kind of had that, um, you know, he's not a, he's a spacey guru, but he's also kind of a soothing authority. Uh, right, right. A soothing authority. It, it, I always hear that voice and think he's mocking me and everyone, like, a train, wow. But you could take it at face value. Carlin's act, he's often very enthusiastic about the things he's, and often very nerdy things. You know, a lot of his act hinges on uh, wordplay, right. puns and double meanings and stuff. And he's and he's, he's just unapologetic about enjoying the intricacies of language and, uh, you know, that stuff's not a put on. So is he... A narrator, or is he Thomas? He is both. No, he, uh, the celebrity is always the celebrity always reads all the parts. It's, oh, I see. It's uh, uh, but my gears are stiff, puffed Thomas. You know. So oh, he, so they're not really they're not speaking. No, that and they're not speaking at all because the whole thing has a very weird aesthetic. Uh, it continues to be very cheaply made. So what you see is uh, a bunch of model trains who cannot move their mouths. So. Ringo or, or Carlin, whoever will be saying, uh, oh no, my passenger cars or whatever, but the, the nobody's mouth will move. Hmm. Their eyes are, can kind of roll and occasionally they will swap out the face on the front of each engine with a different emotion face. So if, if Gordon is scared, suddenly we'll switch back to Gordon and he'll have like a big, uh, oh. motionless open mouth and his eyes will be wheeling in his not head, but whatever the front of a locomotive is called. So they're clearly toys in addition yes. to living in a separate world. It's a, it's a yes. world of toys. And in the eighties, as we know, all the big TV children's properties existed to sell toys. Yeah. And that was no exception here. They made, they were very smart and kind of marketed them to slightly more upscale soccer moms. Like the ones that there were a, a lot of the models you would see in Barnes and Noble near the train table, your kid gets addicted and then he wants this cast of 50 to 80 train characters <laughs> and a lot of them were actually made of wood so you would feel like you were getting your kids something wholesome and improving oh there's nothing more virtuous than a toy made of wood i feel like there were cheap plastic crap there's some method of there's some educational method that hinges on kids what is it the, called the waldorf method where kids are made to feel natural fibers and be in touch with wood and jute so, sounds very waldorf and it makes them better people yeah maybe i'm making that touch up. jute so the thing is, the thing is very technically limited. So it has this kind of odd, really distanced thing where the characters never actually do anything. You just, you switch to them going along a track and clearly somebody somewhere has, has flipped a switch. You're watching an old man play with a model railroad in his basement. Right. Um, and again, the, the narrator, occasionally it's somebody famous like Carlin or Ringo. Uh, it was briefly Alec Baldwin for a few years. Oh, it was? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just... I just guessed. Around the release of Thomas and the Magic Railroad, a big screen attempt to bring Sodor to the screen, in, in which Alec Baldwin played the uh, the conductor. I must have heard that. Uh, I couldn't have just pulled Alec Baldwin out of the sky that, that way. Uh, I, the one time I met Alec Baldwin, we were both on the same talk show. Here we go. And, well, no, I... Uh, I uh, was he opening for you? Yeah, he was over. <laughs> Did he come out and warm him up? No, I was the fir I was the first Letterman guest. He was the main guest, of course. Uh, Alec Baldwin's beloved. Uh, but he was, we were just kind of hanging out, like, in the, I think maybe I, I was coming off and he was next up after the break. So we were just standing uh, at the side of the stage talking. And I said, you know, I'm, it's kind of a bummer. My three-year-old's not here. Like, he loves Thomas. Like, he is a huge fan of yours. You must have a lot of young fans. And he, he, he rolls his eyes and he, he looks at, he's with an assistant or a publicist or something. He's like, oh yeah, 
Thomas and the Magic Railroad. That was a great move, right? Like, I'm so glad I did that movie, which turned out so well. I guess he was not thrilled with... With the returns. But he had young kids that he likes to yell at on tapes you hear at his, sure, di- at his divorce proceedings. Who doesn't have a few a few tapes of uh, yell- themselves yelling at their kids? Luckily, mine are not on tape. Uh, but yeah, mine are just on the podcast, I guess. Wow. Uh, so he was not a huge fan of, but there, there was a, we used to watch the trailer for Thomas and the Magic Road and, it, and it's a very young game, Alec Baldwin saying, we need more gold dust, which we thought Cocaine. was, we thought, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a, it, it, the movie is in a more magical version of the Island of Sodor, which is a little more fanciful. The trains run on a magical gold dust and not on steam or diesel. Uh, the, uh, but the aesthetic of the thing is very weird because as I said, there are humans in this world. You do see engineers and firemen and Sir Topham Hatt running the line and very sternly telling the trains what to do. Are they dolls? Do you see them move? They don't move. They are they are stationary like the trains. I think maybe they can be repositioned between shots if you want somebody to wave or whatever. They also have an O face. I, I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> Not privy to that part of Sir Topham Hatt's private life. But uh, but even as my son loved this thing and I was kind of bored by it, I really found something very off-putting about the whole thing. Hmm. Uh, you know, you've kind of mentioned that trains narratively are a little bit deterministic. They really have to go where they're put. Right. And so it's it's a challenge for these trains to do anything interesting at all or learn any interesting lesson because... They have um, no agency. They have no agency. And that's not subtext. That is literally text in the railway series. They all exist... The trains exist to prove their usefulness. There is a <laughs> there's a ruling class on the island of Sodor, right? Not just Sir Topham Hatton, the the fat controller, but there's also a Duke and Duchess of Sodor. There are VIPs, sure. and the top every top and hat is working for some Duke and Duchess. And below that is the locomotives, and there's a very strict caste system where um, the passenger cars are below that, and they're often women, which is a little troubling. Interesting. And then below that there are. Uh, I'm not sure what it means. The freight cars are sentient, but they are bad news. They are a a, a, um, a grumpy labor class. They're often right. called the troublesome trucks because, and the locomotives have to keep them in line. Sure. They don't want to be hauling coal any more than the next guy. No, but... their life sucks. Yeah. But but none of this is ever questioned. The, what, what do the troublesome trucks really want to be doing? No. You know, shouldn't they have some control over the means of production? So there's no liberation movement? Is there is there any kind of liberation? There is th- one theology. I in believe this? there is one episode where Bulgy the bus comes to the island of Sodor and tries to whip up a bit of a movement. Oh, as a labor agitator. Yeah, because buses can go where they want. Sure. And uh, the episode, the 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 short ends, I think, with um, all the locomotives calling him a scarlet deceiver. Huh. And shunning him, and in fact, um, decommissioning him. He winds up under a bridge, uh, being used as a hen house. That, that is <laughs> Let the fate. that be a lesson to you. So this is not subtext at all. In, from Audrey's books on, he really had this view of the world that is, um, it's conservative, but it's not an American conservatism, which would be, right. you can be anything you want to be with it's a, a little, class-based with a little grit and pluck. It is absolutely class-based. Like the best you can do is to be useful to those above you. Right. And Rise that, up to the highest that your station allows. And by accident, railway turned out to be the perfect metaphor for that. So in advent and so at the time I'm watching this and I'm just like this is a very weird vibe. Uh-huh. Um because every single episode kind of has the same moral. They all learned that they really shouldn't have complained and should have just done what they were told. Right. Uh all it's, the characters learn this repeatedly. It's not even Thatcherism. It's uh it's like It's fascism. <laughs> it's straight up fascism, I think. <laughs> and I would say this like I would uh I you know at the time I had started doing some uh, like speaking at universities, and I would often mention that my son is obsessed with Thomas the Tank Engine, and uh, I really have this Marxist reading of it that uh, makes me very uncomfortable. And it would get a big laugh, but I had never heard anybody else say this. But in preparing this podcast, where I thought I would maybe talk about my Marxist view of Thomas and Friends, sure, because uh, because this is nothing if not a Marxist podcast. Th- that's what we're trying to do. We're mm-hmm. trying to make sure that the um, our futureling listeners. Assuming they're uh, a put-upon underclass, that they rise up against their oppressors yeah, and work to control the means of production. Who, in this case, are Harold McMillan and <laughs> Sir Anthony Eden. 
so in I, I, like I was looking up to see, have, do other people have this gripe about Thomas the Tank Engine? And I discovered a vast internet culture oh. of people just it, loving the weird authoritarian undertones of Thomas the Tank Engine. In 2017... Uh, you G- mean loving to hate it or, or mm, loving it? Yeah, I, I guess both, depending on which side. Because you know how these things always play out in our culture. You know, so, some uh, lefty scold will write a paper, will write an article called um, Thomas the Tank Engine with a provocative clickbaity headline. Thomas the Tank Engine teaches our kids the wrong things. Right, right And right. then right-wing scolds will be like, yet again, the point missed by these <laughs> complaining snowflakes. But in 2017, Gia Tolentino summed up the Thomas culture war for The New Yorker in a piece called The Repressive Authoritarian Soul of Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends. And she really goes through and makes the case that uh, this worldview, which is about 70 years out of date, is being cheerfully promulgated to as, as a series of harmless moral lessons to America's train children. Uh, there's a um, one of the iconic shorts that often gets excerpted to comic effect on the internet. It's called The Sad Story of Henry in which uh, Henry's being a little vain and he's afraid to come out of his tunnel because it's raining and he doesn't want his his um, beautiful green and red paint to get smeared. The Fat Controller tries to pull Henry out with a bridge, but he's not going anywhere. They push him from the other side. <laughs> Tolentino points out, the Fat Controller declines to physically participate in this effort, citing doctor's orders. Sure, sure, so, sure. Yeah, he's got guys for that. Um, he has gout. The <laughs> then the passengers tell Henry he's, he's not, um, it's not even raining. Uh, Henry still refuses to move. And this is the worst thing you can do on Sodor is make the trains not run on time. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's block, a, block a tunnel. That's a fascistic metaphor, right? Like the trains absolutely must run on time. And so the, the short ends with the fat controller declaring that Henry must be punished for life. We will take away your rails and leave you here for always and always. And so the human employees build a brick prison around Henry. His train friends, you know, whiz by him whistling and tooting. He has no steam to whistle back. Um, and so he sits in a brick enclosure wondering if he'll ever be able to be useful again. And the narrator says, I think he deserved his punishment. Don't you? And is he still ends. there? Okay. Is, is he still in the Thomas the Tank Engine universe? Is he still bricked up? Like the cask? It's a cask well, of Amontillado situation with trades. <laughs> Uh, no, I think this is a sitcom universe where everything resets. Oh, generally. wow. Heavy duty. Not always. I mean, new characters are introduced. But yeah, like it's a very bleak little slice of life because he committed the ultimate sin. He was he thought he was above his, his station, literally. Wow. I mean, I could see... I could see an argument being made that kids like things like timetables and, you know... Uh, orderly things. Orderly things. All, want, all kids are little 50s British clergymen. They are. They they all want everything to be on time or, you know, a lot of them. My daughter in particular is a very, like, she's very oriented towards that kind of small rule. We're two minutes late or yeah. you Ch- didn't stop right on the line at the stop sign. Because chaos over. is scary. Yeah. It's why countries descend into fascism. But that, But that the result would be... That you would be put into a train prison, a tomb, and then the then the narrator would would try to get you to sign off on like <laughs> that's what happens to children who don't work hard, and you don't expect it because everything is so cheery and and whistles are tooting and the brightly colored trains are whizzing by. But then you actually, if you actually listen to the narration for any oh. amount of time, you're like, wait, what? Did he? What did he just say about diesel diesel trains? They're they're like a they're a class enemy. They're the oh. everybody's getting riled up against the. Uh, it's not clear whether Newfangled. Yeah, in this metaphor, I'm not sure if if the if the diesel trains are are the Jews that everybody's getting ginned up with hmm. anger against, or if the Japanese, or if the troublesome trucks, the uh, the labor agitators, if they're the Jews. Yeah, maybe the diesels are the Japanese. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure, but it's a real. There's some there's some real weird. <clears throat> I mean, divides and conflicts in this If you're going to like, uh, look for a, a, a leftist uh, analogy, it doesn't really matter uh, what it actually is. You can just throw, throw, throw 30 of them at it. Right. Uh, but there is something just weird and out of date about the Thomas worldview that, that my kids uh, uncritically imbibed for years of their childhood. I often wonder about 
the way that the cl- that class consciousness in British um, media and just our interactions with the, with the United Kingdom uh, culturally, mm-hmm. how it gets translated to the American mind. Because as adults, we love watching Upstairs, Downstairs, or Down Navy. We, we think it's delightful <clears throat> that there's counts and oh, or countesses and earls. So charming, and all of the all of the help who live down in the in the basement, and they have their little. Piccadillos and you know we 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 gobble that stuff up because we don't really have it. We don't have it, and it doesn't have the association that it does. Although we certainly have a class stratification here, it doesn't have that same um, sense of inevitability. And uh, there's not a there's not a sense in America that you're born into anything really. It's certainly a sense of inevitability when it's trains. I, right. I remember Dylan. You know, a, a passenger, a troublesome truck can never become. An engine. It's no. the class system is a is a matter of of mechanics and engineering there. Let I, alone a fat controller. I think I think there's one short I remember Dylan used to watch where Harold uh, the helicopter comes to town and all the trains are sad that they can't fly like Harold. Sure. But of course the lesson is. And then Harold gets gets uh, ends up joining a hippie movement <laughs> and gets high and. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, dying. they just learn that, you know, it's better not to want anything you can't right. have. But I wonder, you know, with a, with an American, American children growing up with their own culture and then having this. That's why we're car country. As a, That's right. Having this as a small side bar, <clears throat> what their takeaway is, what a kid's takeaway is. And I wonder whether sometimes it isn't just that people that speak with British accents don't have opportunity in life. <laughs> yeah, I guess if everything about the culture is telling you a different brand of values, whether liberal or conservative, they're definitely not these. Uh, yeah, you would just think of it as kind of a weird... I mean, maybe you would think of it as a world-building exercise. Like, yeah, it's just like on Sesame Street where you never see the Muppets' feet. You know, you just think of it as some rule of Sodor right. with no application to real life. It's funny because we started this episode talking about how <clears throat> no matter how we tried to uh, nurture our kids, their natures uh, persisted, right? That we yeah. get, we tried, I get, if I gave my daughter only guns and cars and trains, it would not, I would have had very little to no effect on her. We're not um, necessarily affectation. gender essentialists on all topics. No. But we have seen it. We've seen anecdotes of it in parenting. In our lives, yeah. right. But <clears throat> but in a case like this, where you see this kind of, this sort of brainwashing political um, uh, ideology or, or you know, uh, th- this show definitely has a uh, a hot take. I wonder whether our kids aren't bulletproof to that stuff too. I, uh, or to the degree that it, that... Uh, that a, a, that an American kid would actually it's too American would w- would watch Thomas the Tank Engine and think, well, I guess I'm just a just a dirty old truck. Well, it, well, imagine a parallel universe where there is a Thomas the Tank Engine short that ends in revolution. Right. The fat controller is overthrown. The trains get to choose. The trains become where helicopters. They, where they go, blood on the tracks. I mean. I mean, and in a way, that's a that's the that's the weird thing about American, uh, like an American analog to this would be that the trains became helicopters, and a kid would re- would recoil at that. Right. We're, uh, Britain is a Thomas and Friends nation. We're a Transformers nation. Yeah. Right. You can turn into a a big semi or a gun or a robot. You can be what you want to be. And that concludes Thomas the Tank Engine, entry 1300-TI-0209, certificate number 49600, in the Omnibus. Future Links, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, and it hasn't been turned into a helicopter. Hasn't been nationalized by the Fat Controller. Has it not, though? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are wonderful places to have good times uh, interacting with Omnibus. There's a great Twitter feed called uh, Omnibus Out of Context. Is that what what it is? Yeah, I think it might be Omnibus OOC. Is that what the username is? Anyway, Omnibus Out of Context is a a Twitter feed where they uh, clearly just take some quotes out of 
out of their context and uh, and set them apart as as unique little little um, gems gems of wisdom. And we don't remember ever saying them. We we don't. Not only do we not remember having said them, we cannot generally tell whether it was Ken or or uh, me that said it, unless the unless the the uh, curators of the feed actually put a little J or K in front of the quotes. But 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 uh, that would seem weird, right? You and I have such distinctive voices and and worldviews, right? For them to be able to pull routinely lines out of the show where neither of us can remember who said it. I bet with the whole paragraph, maybe we could. Yeah, but just with one sentence, I, I can't even tell who is talking about lizards and why. You know, <laughs> right? It's wonderful, and that is an example of social media being used for the collective good. Um. Is the only such example. There are so many that are that are bad examples of the opposite. But you can go to at Ken Jennings, one of the best places on Twitter, uh, to see Ken's wit and wisdom, and at John Roderick, uh, my my corner of Twitter, which is less good. It's pretty good. Uh, also, I'm on Instagram, uh, posting pictures of things I find in my ravine under my name at John Roderick, and you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com and share with us your theories of Thomas the Tank Engine and uh, the uh, Marxist Revolution. You can uh, you can actually write us a letter, handwritten letter, or send your old Revolutionary War era cart toys to PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. If you have a desire for immediate gratification or more immediate gratification, uh, you can seek out other futurelings on the internet, on um, Facebook under the Futurelings moniker, as well as Discord and TikTok and uh, Grinder, Reddit. Reddit. Speaking of the P.O. box, I just opened this note from Lisa who painted this uh, adorable little watercolor of you and me. That is, is isn't that nice? That's great. We look like ourselves. We do. We look like the show logo. We were. We should. Uh, we should frame this. I, I. I think we should put that right. Right here in a little frame right on the wall. She also sent me a note about her six-year-old son, who liked my kid's book about space, and he made up his own mnemonic for learning the planets without Pluto, which is missing violins eat moss jerky sandwiches until nap time. Hmm. I know that's not true. Missing Mo- violins do not eat moss jerky sandwiches. Moss jerky? Yeah. Come on, John. I love moss jerky, but a, a missing violin wouldn't eat that. I I, I, I I throw the whole idea in the garbage. This seems like some code you read into a computer in a Mission Impossible movie <laughs> so that it like learns how to do your voice or, or something. Um, the only other thing I would recommend to you as, uh, as listeners to the show... Uh, is that you donate to the production and maintenance of Omnibus at our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And uh, your contributions entitle you to access to various other media, including Dylan as a three-year-old train conductor. Uh, I I can't promise that. I'm going to try to put up photos of it. And uh, and it's a and it also is a sort of a wonderful uh, the the sidebar community uh, of Patreon subscribers is a wonderful small community of future links too. So that's Patreon.com/slash Omnibus Project. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived before the trains rose up mm. and uh, became helicopters. <laughs> destroy as soon as they as soon as they could learn to take off vertically we were done how do you how do you defeat a train that can take off vertically we hope and pray that this catastrophe may never come but if the worst comes soon this recording like all our recordings may be our final word but if providence allows if god the fat controller of the universe allows we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus <laughs>